0: Hello, and welcome back to episode two of Uproot, a new series by the Face to Face podcast. I'm your host, Ivy Moore. Today, I'm joined by George Preston and Brykel Killingsworth. And I really just want this episode today um, to be a time and a platform for you two to share whatever you feel needs to be shared in light of everything going on right now in the world. But to start things off, would you guys like to introduce yourselves and maybe say your year in school? Where you're located right now, because we are recording this remotely. And also, I'd like to start by hearing each of your sort of immediate reactions to the past couple of weeks of protests and unrest and social media boom, all in the wake of the murder of George Floyd.
1: Okay, um, I'll start. Um, my name is George Preston IV. I'm a rising senior at Pepperon University. Uh, my major is theater arts. Um, and I would like to respond with. Um, everything that's going on with the quote that, um, I saw on social media, uh, racism is so American and when you're
2: protesting racism, they think you're protesting America. So that's something that put my thoughts. In. Hi, um, I'm Brykel Killingsworth. I'm a rising sophomore at Brooklyn University. I, um, I'm a theater arts major and, um, I'm based in Trinidad, Texas, about an hour east of Dallas. Um, my response to what's been going on for the past couple of weeks, um, it kind of relates to George, I, this, I don't have a quote that was so hard hitting. I like that one. I wish I could have done that, but no, I think my response is just don't take this as a trend. I don't want this to be a trend. Um, I want this to keep going. I want us to fight, you know, it's a marathon as you say. I mean, change, it doesn't come immediately, but in the end, like we will get to where we need to go as long as we like handle this the way it needs to be handled. Not take our time, you know, take our time with this and like, you know, know, just don't treat it like a a normal hashtag, don't treat it like a hashtag.
0: Yeah, kind of going off of what you were just saying, what has been your response to the world's response? If that makes sense. I just feel like it's been a lot on social media the past few weeks and it's almost like America is awakening to what's been going on, like it's new, but it's not new. So I'm just curious what each of your reactions has been to that blow up in the past few weeks.
3: Well, my response um, it stems from a lot of different things. Um, I think
1: the main focus was, I would say the, the consistent theme I've been seeing is the white privilege talk. And one of the things I dislike about the white privilege talk is that is solely focused on the person of color's experience without the focus on whiteness. And what we can do as collectively, like as whites, can, what can we, you guys do? You need to learn about others, but you definitely need to learn about yourself to evoke positive social change. So I do believe conversation matters, discourse matters, language matters, because you can move the needle work with uncomfortable conversations we're having right now. Um, So in the end, white privilege is a white person's problem that has consequences
3: for the person of color. The thing is, it becomes a problem for blacks when you don't deal with the issue or admit it exists. So there's a metaphor of a fish in the water who doesn't know what water is,
1: and if you were to point it out, they wouldn't know what the hell you were talking about. I think the same is true for white people in the country. It's also important to Talk about the nuance that come, you know, from white privilege talk. It it can't just be, it's just not about if someone's rich or, uh, you know, what you had growing up. It can be, you know, not fearing for your life when you're pulled over by cops. That's white privilege. not dealing with people following you around a grocery store. Um, The way
3: people should think about privilege is the flip side of oppression and discrimination. If some people are down, then others have to be up. So you have hundreds of years of the elevation of whites
1: and the subordination of black and brown folks. It's pretty absurd to think that when you pass a few laws roughly 50 or 55 years ago, that all of that inertia suddenly comes to a stop and it's helped people accumulate a huge advantage and at the same time accumulate a disadvantage for others for centuries. So I think, you know, when people are just realizing what's happening, and why it's still occurring, you know, that point exists and it speaks through time. It's going to be a marathon, as Kel says. It's going to be a marathon. But um, my reaction, you know, personally, I am
3: really glad to see that um, people are trying to educate themselves and call themselves out. Um, There's a lot of different feelings, um, but I am truly... Thankful and hopeful that, you know,
2: this keeps rolling. It's about time. Like, welcome. Here we are. Here's where we've been for the past 100 years. Here's where I've been as a black man for my entire life. Welcome to what I've been facing.
1: I've had like a lot of mixed responses with a lot of people randomly reaching out, people I haven't even talked to for a while, people from high school saying, you know, you're, I had, I had a weird uh, instance where this kid from my high school, Recently, hit me up and said, "Hey, George, how are you doing?" I already knew where it was heading because the trend. You know, everyone's talking about it. He says, "You know, you're you're loved. You know, you're great. You're you know, <laughs> you know." I had like a mixed response because, for one hand, I am thankful someone reached out and someone called themselves out. But for you to finally see me, I think me and you talked about this when I was saying,
3: "You know." I know all about his struggle, though, aka the white person's struggle. But for you to finally see me, it's a weird feeling,
1: because on one hand, I am, you know, hopeful for the future. I'm peace-loving, I walk with peace. I want everyone to be equal. You know, that's what we're fighting for, equality. We're not fighting for to be better than you guys. We're fighting just to be equal. When you dissect that, and let's keep it on track. When I figure out, you know, I want to be treated equal. I want to be loved. I have that for me. You know, people like George Floyd, I'm fighting for him. I'm fighting for other kids in my community. I'm fighting for everybody. I'm fighting for myself because that could have been me. So to have you text me, not you, but the guy, to text me and say, you know, you were loved, you were cared for. I know this. I know I am loved. I know I'm special. But we need to keep this rolling. We need to keep this going out there because there are a lot of people with messed up ideas and um, passing on knowledge. That's not true. A lot of stuff, a lot of tropes, passing on is not true. And that's why we continue to do the work and continue to educate ourselves and continue to be out in the streets fighting for kids like me and my kids and future your kids and whoever. So, you know, I was thankful for him reaching out, but it also rubbed me the wrong way that, you know, now you see me. Um, After, you know, you've been learning about me in school. Granted, the educational system isn't that great. (laughs) They don't go
3: too deep into what's, you know, really happened. But, you know, Black Lives Matter didn't just spring up uh, a week to two
1: ago. It It was a really political thing to say when I would bring it up to my white friends back in 2016, 2017. Nobody wanted to say it. But now people are proudly saying it, putting their bios, putting it on their pictures, wearing it like
3: it's a trend. And I don't know how to feel about that. I don't. So I'm kind of like, you know, split. Me and Kel were talking about that. We're talking about feeling split, feeling thankful because we do need allies.
2: Also, why now? Because then it also makes you wonder if you feel like you were obligated to do this so you don't you know, feel like I view you a certain way. That's how I felt about people who reached out to me because we have our own history. We have our history about how our own interactions and whatnot, and now they come out to me, same as George, you know, I see you. I- I'm sorry this has been your experience what whatnot. I'm sorry this is going on.
1: And I mean, to jump off that, and I will acknowledge that we have progressed in a lot of ways. We've also have been back and we all stayed stagnant in certain details, certain areas that you wouldn't normally look at. You know, some voter suppression, you know, that we dealt with in the Southern Freedom Movement. You know, everything has changed and also nothing has changed. So we've never had an America where we've had a free and fair access to the ballot. Like the intersection of voting rights and white privilege go hand in hand. So, like, we've created voter ID laws where you have about 25% of African Americans who do not have the IDs. And with the exact match program in Georgia, 53,000 voter registrations were held in electoral purgatory in the 2018 election. And 70% of those were African American. So we are systematically wiping Americans off the rolls. You know, there's certain details where we just don't push. We see, you know, we can be interracial. We can... You know, being in schools together, you know, we can hold hand in hand, but there are little details that will always keep a grip because this whole nation is painted with racism.
0: Yeah. Could we go a little deeper into that systemic um, part of it all? You had just started touching on that. Take that how you want it. I'm curious to see what you guys have to say.
3: Okay. So I will
1: go about imprisonment. A prison, imprisonment has become the first response resort to many of the social problems that burden people who are, you know, impoverished areas. These problems often are veiled by, you know, being conveniently grouped together under the category of crime and by the automatic attribution of criminal behavior to people of color. I would say that. So you got homelessness, you have unemployment, you have drug addiction, mental illness, and illiteracy. Only few of the problems that disappear from public view when the human beings contending with them are relegated to cages. Prisons perform a feat of magic. That's what I would say. So. The people who continually vote in new prison bonds and assent to the network of prisons and jails have been tricked into believing in the magic of imprisonment. But prisons do not disappear problems. They disappear human beings. And the practice of disappearing vast numbers of people from poor, immigrants, and racially marginalized
3: communities have literally become big business. So the seemingly effortless of
1: magic always conceals an enormous amount of behind the scenes work. You know, they dis- prisons, like disappear human beings in order to convey the illusion of solving social problems. The infrastructures must be created to accommodate a rapidly swelling population of caged people. Goods and services must be be provided to keep imprisoned people and populations alive. Sometimes these populations must be kept busy. And you have people working and putting businesses in
3: these prisons, making people work for free. We're talking new slavery. So. The color of imprisonment. Almost 2 million people are currently locked up. More than 70% people of color. It's rarely acknowledged that the fastest group of prisoners
1: are Black women and the Native American prisoners are the largest group per capita. Approximately 5 million, including those on probation and parole, are directly under the surveillance of a criminal justice system. Three decades ago, the imprisoned population was approximately one eighth its current size. While women still constitute a relatively small percentage, behind bars today, the number of incarcerated women in California alone is almost twice what the nationwide women pro- prison population was in 1970. Colored bodies constitute the main human raw material in the vast experiment to disappear the major social
3: problems of our time.
0: It's crazy. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this really, really blew up during the war on drugs and everything. Under like Nixon and Reagan, when they started criminalizing black men and hippies, I think is what he said. And then it just has really, really taken off in the prison system since is that correct
1: yes so i'm gonna just give a little bit about 13th so the 13th documentary it was written by ava duvernay uh it's based on the 13th amendment and explores the um, the intersection of race justice and mass incarceration in the united states so the 13th amendment states that unless pretty much unless you're criminalized you're free So if you're put in jail, that doesn't apply to you. Slavery was abolished for everyone except criminals. So DuVernay, she pretty much exhibits how slavery has been maintained in practice since the end of the American Civil War through actions such as criminalizing behavior and enabling police to arrest poor, free men. African-Americans were arrested for things such as simple as loitering and then while in prison, Um, they had to provide labor for the state. Um, It describes mass incarceration in the prison system as a negative reaction to the civil rights movement. The prison system continues to be racist and violent. However, in ways, you know, it's continually evolving. Starting in the 1940s, um, the amount, statistics of the amount of prisoners rises slowly but steeply. Rising, in the numbers began during the civil rights movement and continues into today's society. The more we see the protests for the rights increase, the harder the political system fights back. So it's like you know a little battle, an un, you know a battle that we don't see every day. They do whatever they can do to punish blacks with the means of imprisonment. The thirteenth demonstrates that criminalization continues to rise and has been a constant feature of racism. She also examines. Uh, I think she examined the prison industrial complex, showing how much money is being made from, by corporations from such incarcerations. Um, one of the facts that was stated was that one in three African-Americans will go to jail in their lifetime, while one in 17 white Americans will go to jail. There's no reason for the numbers to have that big a difference between African-Americans and white Americans. The, sti- the statistic clearly like shows how unfair the criminal justice system is, and how racism still continues to factor. So then we move to slavery being banned, and white people took it to their own hands to find any other possible way to shame African Americans. So white people took advantage of African Americans by disenfranchisement, like lynchings and Jim Crow. So this was also during a time that politicians declared a war on drugs which weighed more heavily in minority communities, leading to mass incarceration in the U.S. They made it so Blacks were defenseless across the South at the turn of the 20th century.
0: Thanks for dropping all that knowledge based on the movie. Um, okay, kind of rearing similarly to mass incarceration, I'm wondering if we could talk about policing and um, defunding the police and I know that statement has been tossed around recently on social media um, essentially stating that decreasing police funds by reinvesting in communities through social services.
3: I think the
1: problem is so much bigger than individual bad cops like there is a separate legal and political framework that shields cops from consequences and it gives them special rights when they're defending themselves. And it often trains them to fear communities they're supposed to protect. Um in America, we have the most well-trained officers in the world, in the world. However, they are trained to act and not react sometimes, even before threat fully manifests, you have to act instantly. They spend eight hours training cops with conflict and de-escalation and 129 hours with weapons and fighting. Like imagine if pilots spent 94% of their training going down the emergency slide. Like (laughs) every single cop in this country is protected by qualified immunity. So when you sue a cop, you have to prove that they violate a a right that was clearly established. But the kicker is, Is right. If it isn't clearly established until someone successfully sued a cop for violating it. So it's the police version of you getting your first job. They ask you, do you have any experience? However, you can't have any experience before you work your first job. So qualified immunity basically means you can get away with anything as long as you're original. So. (laughs) And there is no like national database for police misconduct. Many. Police union contracts shield bad cops from legal consequences. So then you ask how are people, how are police unions blocking reform? The collective bargaining agreements that they engage with at individual police agencies will often have provisions relating to police discipline. It may limit how officers are investigated, it may limit how officers are disciplined it may require that an officer's disciplinary record be cleared every 60 days. That means there's no history even when an officer is engaged in misconduct repeatedly. So cops are treating misconduct like it's your browser history and they hear your mom running upstairs. So in Chicago, so after the cop shot um, Laquan McDonald, their union deal gave the officer 24 hours before needing to say anything after the shooting. The contract itself institutionalized these private understandings among police officers that make it harder to identify and root out their bad behavior. If we allow a lot of time to pass after something happens, worst case scenarios, that time period gives them an opportunity to collude. Basically, they get a day to put their story together and this is built into their police contract. <laughs> and and these, these special rights don't make it to cop union contracts. They can be put into law enforcement officer bill of rights. So that's basically a protection of a union contract in the form of a state law. So police officers have worked with at least 16 states, um, I believe, to pass the Bill of Rights Laws. Um, they come with a couple of interesting provisions. Um, so like After a, let me give you an example. So after a critical incident, like a police shooting, a bill of rights might say that the officer has a right to review certain evidence, including potentially statements by other witnesses and or video recordings of the incident. So basically,
3: if a police officer is under investigation before making a statement, they can say, hey, uh, can I look at the tape first?
1: (laughs) you see what I'm saying? So unions don't tend to see it as if their job to create positive policing. They tend to see it as their job to protect their Mm -hmm. current members. So when Stephon Clark was shot, the DA received donations within a week of the shooting of Stephon Clark, a 22-year-old black man in Sacramento, Sacramento, by two police unions of thirteen thousand dollars, and you get no criminal
3: charges. Now between police unions, their contracts. Bill of Rights, and relationships with prosecutors. Cops often operate in a world of their own.
0: That's just insane. What would you say to people that are so gung-ho about defunding the police?
3: Um, I would say do some research
1: on how it operates first and see what we can fix. Uh, I think the more you research is the best. Um, I'm not assuming they didn't do research. I'm just saying. I think there are other ways to give what we need. Um, I don't totally disagree with defunding the police, but I do think we should think about it more and we should also just investigate more and see if, I don't think we should defund it without a plan. Um, Because at the end of the day, we are fighting for social justice, but also crimes do happen. So, you do need to make sure the communities feel safe. I hear that people are now instituting community leaders and community, you know, people to handle, you know, disagreements, and they're creating a, like an action team for each city. I do think um, the bigger cities, they do need to have a cohesive plan, and they need to dissect and figure out a way for, you know, the people that they're policing, the communities that they are policing um to know about how it operates because this is not public. You know, we didn't learn about this in school. <laughs> because they, they knew if we knew about this stuff, this would have happened a long time ago. This isn't like stuff that we learned in school. We got the basic stuff, but the intricacy, the the little details that matter and that really um, they really, they really uh, tell why things operate and why things aren't convicted, why things, you know, why isn't this happening? Well, you have to look at the source and the root of all of it. And let's be honest, it's all about money. It's all about pushing yourself to the next position, the next thing. It's not about actually caring about the people, the citizens. And when you realize that, I don't know where you stand. I don't know if I answered your question at all. And also think of solutions to offer to, you know, the people in charge, wherever you are. Because I think it's a collaborative effort. We're all learning new things. We're all figuring it out. Because you got to think, you know, it's not going to be so easy to think of something to replace this. (laughs) But I think restructuring it and, um, you know, doing more screening, better screening. I'm not saying they don't do screening because they do screening for the people they get and they do the right screening for that. They do attract a particular crowd. Um, However, I think we do need a better job um, in appreciating and um, putting the right people in charge and authority and holding them accountable.
0: One thing I just wanted to add was um, I feel like police in a way has already been abolished and abolished in a way it still exists. Like you can still call them, but in white neighborhoods, I do live in a neighborhood that is um, predominantly white and I don't see police cars driving around. I don't see police just hanging out. And that's because we police each other, and the, there's no real need, but I imagine if they took out as many police officers as they have driving around in um neighborhoods with people of color, there wouldn't be as many ticketing if they if they hadn't had all these people just driving around trying to police people unnecessarily, I don't think the quote unquote crime would be as great. Does that make sense because that's just what I've been. Hearing because people are calling to abolish and to defund the police. But I think it's already been abolished in a way in neighborhoods of white people.
2: You know, Jordan and I have both had our own experiences. Even yesterday, I was celebrating my aunt's birthday party. And I and this is and my aunt, they live in a predominantly white neighborhood. Like they have a really nice house in a white neighborhood. But there's this like still a cop that I don't know if like neighbors call the police whenever they see us gather. It doesn't matter where we go. There's always a squad car that I like, continually like just drives, like doesn't drive by like every once in a while. It's just, I don't know.
3: You start feeling like an animal in a way. Like I mentioned that
1: because I grew up, I grew up in an average neighborhood, medium. You know, there was some crime that happened around. my neighborhood. Whereas here where I'm at, no crime. Dude, I can run, I can run at night, feel great. Why is that, you know? And I thought about my mental and how when I was a kid, I did feel like a caged animal. I did
3: feel like people were out to get me, even if they weren't. And I'm not saying it's bad to be aware, but I'm saying
1: part of it, the bad thing is to be aware also, you kind of feel like a victim. And it's hard to feel strong when you realize you literally sometimes don't have control over your own life. And at the end of the day, you feel like a free black man. I'm speaking for myself. I don't know how Kel feels, but I felt like a free black man and up to a point. There's always a point. And that's the sad part because there's always a weak moment in me, meaning I've had white girlfriends. I have driven in Alabama with white girlfriends and always been scared. If I p- pull a bike cop, what if they're mad today? What if I have no control of the situation? I've had a car wreck with a white girl in there and I was scared. You know, what if, you know, things just go awry because he doesn't like, you know, that I'm with her. Always a fear. So in a way you feel like you're free, but you don't have the freedom that a white person has. I know I have the freedom to fight for, uh, you know, by position of how I feel about being pulled over. I feel about whatever. Um, me and Kel had an instance where, um, I won't go too into detail, but being pulled over for an air freshener two, months, two or three months ago, Kel, was it? We were going to the movie theaters. Yeah, it was the week before we had to leave campus. I said, Kel, they're about to pull me over. I can tell. I see them smiling. They say, I pulled you over for this air freshener. There's one cop here, one cop behind me. And they say when they come to the window, they're scared for their life. So he comes to my window, has his gun, tells me, I pulled you over for the air freshener. I say, exactly. You're right. Now, (laughs) I could have said a lot of different things. But my thing was, I'm trying to get the hell out of there.
3: They're yelling on the intercom. They say, I pulled you over for this air freshener. What? They talk to us, they laugh. They took his ID.
2: I'm driving. And they say, so you're from Texas and you're from Alabama. Well, I guess you don't know, this is a California thing. You can't have air fresheners.
1: I saw him grab his gun, talking to me. My thing was, I'm gonna be Mr. Nice Black guy. And I just said that. Yes, I'm gonna be Mr. Nice Black guy. You're right, officer. I will take it off right now. I said, Kel, let's take it off right now.
3: I got out of there. Me and Kale just sat there for a second. We were kind of taken aback a little bit. In a way, it traumatized you a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's just so problematic just based on these stories you're saying that you literally alter your behavior just to appease somebody else who has this quote-unquote power given to them. But in reality, they should be no different. Yeah, that's just extremely problematic. So I'm thankful that you shared those that story so people listening can be aware but I imagine that's just the tip of the iceberg and there's so much underneath it
2: Harvard I think Harvard's taking like a bigger approach their response to what's going on is like what I feel like we should be looking to uh, for like an example of what we should do next they were you know mostly built founded founded on slavery and like slavery is like Throughout their entire history at uh, Harvard, they've decided to make the move to like include their uh, their history with slavery into you know courses, and to actually uh, educate their students on what exactly what was going on and why they are the institution they are today. You know, kind of like backtrack and push it rather than where we are, where we're s- kind of shoving it under the rug and acting like it doesn't exist. I just feel like that's a really strong example of how they're you know taking action, how they're communicating with their students getting together, you know, having conversations with their staff and working on, like, really making progress towards here's where we are and, like, you know, calling themselves out basically is what they're doing. And I just find that, like, really inspirational.
0: That reminded me of, um, do you guys know Brian Stevenson?
2: Yeah,
1: Just
0: Mercy. Yeah, so he said how in Germany, they don't have any um, statues of Hitler or Nazis. There's no memorabilia, but they point you back to Holocaust museums and they want you to go to those museums and they they make them really nice and they want you to see what they did wrong and what they messed up and they want to bring awareness to that and correct it and they're very, I feel like they're doing what you're saying Harvard is trying to do by not brushing it under the rug and I just feel like that's a really great example that you brought up and something that other institutions need to start doing and America as a whole should do by like recognizing our history.
3: You know why they don't do that? Simply because of this. When you take, if you took, if they actually took, you know, accountability of what happened,
1: you would realize how much of the U.S. was built on the backs of Blacks and how much you owe us. And then we're seeing a shift in what we have now that would be so dramatic that the U.S. would never be the same. If they actually acknowledged it on a global scale, what (laughs) the slaves did for the Southern economy that was built, we're just going, just cover the Southeast area. If they actually acknowledged that, how much money was made and how much money
3: would have never been made if they were never here, you would be owing us, I won't even say a number, but just know, it's all for a reason. It's an idea to protect things.
1: That we forge our way to make ourselves, you know, the the best out here. And we're, you know, supreme. However, we're, not, we're leaving out the details of who actually made us that money and made us
3: that big business. It's insane. The power that holds. Do
0: you think a greater problem is White people of power who understand how embedded it is, or do you think a bigger problem is people who are oblivious and ignorant to it?
3: Hmm. Well, I would say the people that know it, because those are the people that are
1: going behind their backs and putting up policies and writing laws and forming corporations to pass things, to oppress certain people. And I think if you know better, you do better. That's why I live by. Know better, you do better. And let's speak up. I want to see the big CEOs speak up. I want to see people that know about this and have been silent long for a long time and admit that what you put into motion, don't say, you know, I shouldn't have done that. I want you to speak specifically about what you were trying to do strategically so we can get this evil written out of this country. Simple as that just like those people doing the 13th documentary so specific the nixon advisors, so specific the reagan campaign manager so specific they didn't know they were going to be put in the documentary however they were so truthful so eloquent you were contributing to my success thank you for being honest about your evil ways we can move forward let's go